Uh, if you would, open up your Bibles to John chapter 10. So just before we get started, um, I kind of want to confess that uh, there's been a time or two where I've had to prepare um, a talk or a sermon on <clears throat> things that I'm not intimately familiar with, and it's always a difficult task. So the past past three or four weeks has been uh, somewhat challenging for me because, uh, like I've told you and like I'm going to tell you again tonight, um, canon has not been my strong point uh, just because I, I didn't even know that it was an issue that really ought to be addressed. You know, it, ne- it never it never came to my mind to think like, oh, how do we get the books we got? And so, um, especially this week, I'm trying to go over the re- really the foundations for why we can believe and trust the Bibles that we have sitting in our laps. Uh, that we have in our hands, that we read uh, during the week, that we hear preached so often, like why we can trust what we have here. Uh, and so I say all that just to just, just to kind of say thank you for being patient. Thank you for uh, bearing up, especially last week, going over so much information over such a short time frame. We're going to do the same thing tonight. Uh, and so this is very, very much an introduction, very, very much something that uh, you should all study on your own. Um, like I said, the book I've been using, Canon Revisited, is an, is an amazing book. Uh, it really, it really has been eye-opening um, in a lot of ways on the issue of Canon. So I encourage you to continue on, even though we'll be moving on in the next few weeks from this particular subject. So uh, John chapter ten, read in verse twenty-seven. My sheep. Hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have together as your people. Uh, We thank you that we can come before you and worship. Lord, and that we can do so in a unified way, that we can do so uh, corporately. And God, I pray now, uh, as we enter into this time of uh, teaching, of preaching, Father, uh, that you would help me, Lord, that you would get me out of the way, that you would get my words out of the way, Father, that you would speak your truth to your people so that your people may be edified by your voice. God, I pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would work in us so that we may understand what your scriptures teach. Father, so that we may take confidence in the word that has been handed down to us through the ages. Father, I pray uh, that you would help us to be attentive. Lord, that you would help us to understand your word. And that you would help us to trust in your faithfulness. Oh God, we know that you are faithful and we know that you are uh, merciful and that you watch over your people, God. And so I pray that now you would continue to do so and just help us, Father. Amen. So, 
Last week, we began our two-part study on the canon of Scripture. Uh, This week, as we continue to study this topic, I want to be upfront again and say, like last week, because I have only begun to study uh, this issue, I am reliant on the expertise of another, namely Dr. Michael J. Kruger and his book, Canon Revisited, as well as the Holy Spirit to communicate this topic to you. Uh, All of the qualifications I gave last week, including my copious quotation of Canon Revisited, apply to my sermon this week. And I encourage you all, as I have previously, to pick up Dr. Kruger's book and read it, and also to take advantage of his seminary course on the issue of Canon that is available for free online. Uh, All that said, I have a lot I want to cover tonight, and I want to be respectful of everyone's time, so uh, let's begin again in our study of canon. Canon, for those uh, who are not here, or those who forgot or who have not listened to last week's message, uh, is the collection of books that make up the Bible. What we are studying, the questions that we are trying to answer are, can we know what books are supposed to be in the Bible, and if so, how can we know? Tonight, I want to include a more direct reference to the 1689 Confession that we have been using, uh, because much of what we'll talk about tonight is addressed in sections 4 and 5 of chapter 1 of the Confession. Uh, Section 4 says, The authority of the Holy Scriptures obligates belief in them. This authority does not depend on the testimony of any person or church, but on God, the author alone, who is truth itself. Therefore, the Scriptures are to be received because they are the Word of God. So we read just a moment ago from John 10 and verse 27. Jesus says there, My sheep hear my voice. We've already, we've already discussed at length uh, that what we have in the Bible are the very words of God Himself. So when Jesus tells us that his sheep hear his voice, what we have to understand is that we see in, is that what we see in Scripture is the voice of God speaking. When we apply this truth to our discussion of canon, what we see is that only Jesus' sheep will be able to recognize his voice. I labored last week to make a singular point, that man cannot determine canon. Only God determines canon. What we as followers of Jesus, as his sheep, do is recognize canon. We are not able to come up with some sort of criteria or method for determining what books are supposed to be in the Bible without acknowledging that it is God through the Bible that actually tells us the criteria and method. Without Scripture authenticating itself, what we essentially have is an arbitrary methodology that we, as humans, impose on the Bible, instead of allowing the Bible to show us how we can recognize and know what books should be considered authoritative as the voice of God. To quickly restate a point that I've made, an ultimate authority, like the Scriptures, cannot be proven without using the authority itself. In order to authenticate the proper canon of Scripture, we must use Scripture. And because our introduction to canon last week was depressingly void of Scripture, 
Tonight, I want to look at a lot of Scripture. Before we continue uh, to actually go on with Dr. Kruger's perspective in his study of the New Testament canon, we need to look just a bit at the biblical basis for believing we have the correct Old Testament canon. This is not Dr. Kruger's primary area of expertise, but as I noted last week, much of what he has to say about the New Testament canon can ultimately apply in principle to the Old Testament canon. And also, before we dig in, I want to clarify that the canon I am speaking of is not the canon of the Catholic Church or any other so-called Christian uh, church. What I am discussing is the canon that you have in your lap right this very moment. We are studying the Protestant canon as listed in the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. So I mentioned last week that according to Dr. Kruger, there are three components to the epistemic environment that the New Testament gives us to reliably form our belief in the New Testament canon. They are, number one, providential exposure, which simply means that we cannot have a book in the canon that we have not been exposed to by the providence of God. We can't consider a book that we have not and cannot see. Number two, is the attributes of canonicity, which we will discuss later, and include attributes such as divine qualities, corporate reception, and apostolic origins. Uh, though for the Old Testament canon, right, uh, we might want to think more along the lines of prophetic origins, not ap apostolic origins. Uh, and finally, number three, the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, which is how we are ably, uh, able to rightly recognize which books are canonical. So, Dr. Kruger notes of these three components. These are not three independent and disconnected qualities that canonical books happen to possess, but each attribute implies and involves the other two. Thus, you cannot really speak of one attribute without, in a sense, speaking of the others. They're all bound together. And any book that, uh, excuse me, uh, divine qualities exist only because a book is produced by an apostolic author. And any book that has an apostolic author, due to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will inevitably contain divine qualities. Any, in addition, any book with divine qualities and apostolic origins uh, will impose itself on the church and be corporately received. So, when considering the Old Testament, we are not without the proper epistemic environmental components. The Old Testament, I will argue, uh, possesses the same attributes in principle as the New Testament. We have been providentially exposed to these books as the people of God. The Holy Spirit works in us the same way to confirm and recognize the Old Testament canon as he does for the New Testament canon. The only attribute that is slightly different is that the books were written by or under the authority of the Old Testament saints and prophets as opposed to the apostles. So uh, we still must use Scripture to define our standards for recognition. We'll discuss shortly in more detail the divine qualities of the books where we'll see that the Old Testament and the New Testament possess the marks of divinity. We'll also discuss what corporate reception of the canon looks like, which can be applied to the Old Testament in principle. Uh, for now, I want to briefly make a case for how we can recognize, according to the Bible, that the books of the Old Testament that we have in the Protestant canon are the right ones. One way to see that the books that have been passed down to us in the Old Testament are, uh, 
One way is to see that the books that have been passed down to us in the Old Testament are authoritative. Uh, so turn with me to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 4. And we'll read in verse 2. So Deuteronomy 4, 2. <clears throat> And this time I didn't write so much scripture in my uh, in my paper here that uh, I'm just going to breeze on past while y'all still looking. <laughs> so uh, Deuteronomy 4 verse 2 says, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. <clears throat> God tells the Israelites that they shall not add to nor take away from the commands that he is giving them. He expects that the terms of the covenant that he is making with them through covenant documents is to be upheld on both sides. God tells Israel how to be obedient and how to honor him as God, and he tells them what blessings they should expect for obedience and what curses to expect for breaking the covenant. It is a written covenant that cannot be altered by either party. Psalm uh, 12, Psalm 12. Look at verse 6. Psalm 12, verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. So the words of the Lord are pure. They've been tested. The verse includes the number of completion, seven, showing that the words of God are perfect and need nothing added to them. Proverbs chapter 30. We'll look at verse uh, 5. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And then in 6, do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. This verse combines principles from the other two. God's word is perfect. It has been tested, and it is not to be added to because it is his word, right? So we see that God's word has authority. Another way to make the case for having the correct Old Testament canon is to see how the New Testament assumes that the written scriptures exist and that they are authoritative. In Luke 24, and we looked at this last week, in Luke 24, or a couple weeks ago, not last week, a couple weeks ago, in Luke 24, again, looking at the disciples on the road to Emmaus in verse 25, Jesus chides them for being slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, and continues on, according to verse 27, to explain to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. Right, So Jesus is referring to something that they had, that they possessed, in order to explain something to them. Right, <clears throat> uh, John chapter 5. Look at verse 39. It says, if I can get there. Uh, John 5.39, it says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. 
So John 5.39 contains a similar admonition. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Right? Acts chapter 17, verse 2. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. It was a regular practice, according to Acts, for the Apostle Paul to regularly go into the synagogues and preach from the Scriptures. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Here we see Paul telling believers that the Scriptures are written for our instruction and that through them we have encouragement and hope. And here's the thing. We know what books were in the canon according to the Jews in Jesus and the Apostles' day. They were the same 39 books that we possess in the Protestant Old Testament canon. Jesus refers to this canon in Matthew 23, 35. Let's look at that real quick. Matthew 23, verse 35. It says, So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And so here we see Jesus mentioning the canon in a specific way. He says, all the blood from Abel, which is Genesis, to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, which is Second Chronicles. The interesting thing to notice is that the Jewish canon began with Genesis, as ours does, but it didn't end with Malachi. It ended with Chronicles. And so in essence, what we have here is Jesus is saying uh, something similar to the way that we might say from Genesis to Revelation. Right? He recognized the 39-book canon that we also have. The apocryphal books that are included in the Catholic canon were not a part of the Jewish canon that Jesus recognized. And none of the New Testament authors cite any, any apocryphal books as authoritative. And that's, that's important because I think it's in, I think it's in Jude uh, that, which book is it that's cited? Um, it's, one, it's, 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 it's one of the apocryphal books. I can't remember off the top of my head right at the moment. Uh, but there are apocryphal books cited in the New Testament, but none of them are cited as authoritative. All right, none of them are cited as scripture. All right. <clears throat> um, so uh, I'll mention in passing also that in section three of the 1689, the books of the apocrypha are said to be not inspired and not canonical. Therefore, they have no authority for the church and are not to be used any differently than any other human writing. And now we begin to turn our attention back to Kruger's perspective. Hopefully you'll be able to see how these principles overlap for the Old and New Testaments. 
And here also I want to mention that these principles can be seen laid out similarly in section 5 of the 1689. Kruger begins to lay out his case for the self-authenticating nature of the scriptures by appealing to the divine qualities of the books in the canon. Okay, And so the 1689 puts it this way. The the heavenliness of the contents, the power of the system of truth, the majesty of the style, the harmony of all the parts, the central focus on giving all glory to God, the full revelation of the only way of salvation, and many other incomparable qualities and complete perfections all provide abundant evidence that the Scriptures are the Word of God. And Dr. Kruger divides up the divine qualities of the canon into three parts. The beauty and excellency of Scripture, the power and efficacy of Scripture, and the unity and harmony of Scripture. So, on the beauty and excellency of Scripture, the Scriptures bear the attributes of God. And we can see some of the attributes of God in the following verses. So, uh, in Psalm 27, verse 4, God is beautiful. It says, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate on His, to meditate in His temple. And the same thing in Psalm 50, verse 2. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty God has shown forth. God is holy, according to Isaiah uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Let's read those real quick. Uh, this is a good one to bring up a lot of times because it's it's uh, it's the woe is me passage, right? It's the one where Isaiah gets so scared that he doesn't really know what to do. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, starting verse 1, it says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds uh, trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew uh, flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar uh, with tongs. <clears throat> he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. The scriptures are also like God. So in Psalm 19, verse 7, right, and we're comparing the attributes of God to the attributes of the scriptures, okay? So in Psalm 19, verse 7, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. And in verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. And then in Psalm 119, verse 103, How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And verse 129, Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore my soul observes them. Kruger notes, The beauty of Scripture, then, is a spiritual beauty, not just an aesthetic one. 
For this reason, Calvin, that is John Calvin, acknowledges that the classics like Cicero, Plato, Aristotle, all have rhetorical force, but that the scripture, and here's where he quotes Calvin, clearly is crammed with thoughts that could not be humanly conceived. So Kruger continues, As Paul himself says, And my speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Which is from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And now we want to talk about the power and efficacy of Scripture. So the second aspect of the divine qualities of Scripture is their power and efficacy. They bring... Wisdom, according to Psalm 119, verse 98. Let's read it. And we're going to go through these pretty quick. Uh, 119.98. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever, mi- they are ever mine. Second Timothy It says, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So the Scriptures uh, give joy to the heart. Nehemiah chapter 8. We'll start in verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people and said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people are weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, and to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. And then Psalm 119, verse 111. For I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are a joy to my heart. The Scriptures provide light in the dark paths of life. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. They give understandings to the mind. Psalm 119, verse 144. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. They give peace and comfort. 119, verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. They expose guilt and sin. 2 Kings chapter 22. We'll start reading in verse 11. It says, When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah, the priest, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Akbor, the son of Micaiah, 
Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, and the people, and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us. Because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do, to do according to all that is written concerning us. <clears throat> and then in Acts chapter 2, we see again where the Scriptures bring conviction of sin. Right? Acts chapter 2, we'll read starting in verse 34. <clears throat> For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, where, or excuse me, what shall we do? And then in Hebrews chapter 4, we'll read starting in verse 12. <clears throat> For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts intention, and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him uh, with whom we have to do. And they lead to prosperity and blessing. Psalm chapter 1. And this is one we sing very often. <clears throat> How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. So, Kruger states on this aspect of power and efficacy. He says, uh, in the language of Reformed theology, this divine quality can, can be summed up by saying that the Scriptures are a means of grace. Scriptures do more than pass along propositional information, as important as that is, they are living and active, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, which we just saw in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. When we see the Scriptures themselves as a means by which God imparts His grace to us, it helps us to recognize the power that they have. We can know God, truly know Him, if we look at the Scriptures. So, next we'll look at the unity and harmony of Scripture. I want to begin here by noting that God is always consistent with Himself. Psalm 89, verse 35 says, Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. Proverbs 14, verse 5, A trustworthy witness will not lie, but a false witness utters lies. Titus 1, verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. In Hebrews 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. If God is consistent, 
then we should expect his word to have unity in what it says and teaches, as well as be able, uh, as well as be in harmony across the whole of it. Dr. Kruger, as well as others, has noticed strong examples of this in the Bible. In the book, Kruger lays out the case for doctrinal unity, redemptive historical unity, and structural unity. So on doctrinal unity, the book states, uh, when the various parts of the scriptures are examined, it is evident that there is unity on a complex array of theological issues, such as the nature of God, the makeup of man, the nation of Israel, the purpose and structure of the church, the person and work of Christ, the message of forgiveness and redemption, the importance of holiness, the role and function of the sacraments, eschatology, and the last days, and so on and so on. Uh, this is what we depend on when we examine and study the Bible, is it not? If we could not expect doctrinal unity throughout, then what would be our motivation for studying it at all? If when we open up Genesis, we don't expect it to agree theologically with Revelation, then there's no use for us to read the Bible in the first place. It would simply not make sense, and we would end up like so many theological liberals who hold little to no real authority in the Scriptures. The second type of unity Kruger posits is a redemptive historical unity. He states, Indeed, many have noted that the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is telling the same overarching redemptive story of God, reconciling fallen men, uh, fallen humanity to Himself through the person of Jesus Christ. The issue for the early Christians was not only whether the New Testament books agreed with the Old Testament books on any given doctrine, as important as that was, but whether the New Testament books actually completed the story begun by the Old Testament. So, what early Christians expected from books that would be seen as Scripture was that they would be coherent with the story that begun in the Old Testament. Uh, what the early Christians witnessed themselves was the fulfillment of the promises given in the Old Testament in regards to how God would save and redeem His people. So Kruger writes again, early Christians were able to recognize the canonical books because these were, among other things, the books that fully exalted Jesus Christ as the long-awaited resolution to the problem, the problem of sin and rebellion articulated throughout the Old Testament books. So we recognize the gospel in many places in the Old Testament, do we not? When we read the story of Noah, we see Christ. When we read the story of Moses, we see Christ. When we read, the, when we read of David, we see Christ. And when we see the destruction of Jerusalem and hear God's promise to His people to deliver them, we see Christ. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. This will probably be the longest quotation that we have tonight. Ezekiel chapter 36. Hopefully this is a familiar one. <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 36, and we'll start in verse 22. Therefore, and again, what I'm laying out here is the unity of the redemptive ark 
in the Bible. Okay, so just keep that in mind as we read these passages right here. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 22, it says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy in, among you in your sight, in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and I will bring you into your own land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God." Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the grain and multiply it, and I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you, be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities... I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. They will say, this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left round about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. Thus says the Lord God, This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like a flock for sacrifices, like a flock at Jerusalem during her appointed, during her appointed feast. So will the waste cities be filled with the flocks of men, and they will know that I am the Lord. So keep that in mind and turn to Revelation chapter 20. Excuse me, Revelation chapter 21. Just a page over. Starting in verse 1. Compare in your minds, compare. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. 
He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Do you see the unity there? So the third type of unity laid out in Canon Revisited is a structural unity. When we look at the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, we see that its structure is actually a covenant. In ancient times, agreements were made between kings or leaders and their subjects or lessers. Uh, when these covenants were cut, we know that the terms of the covenant were put into written documents that gave the expectations of both parties and the curses and blessings that would follow in the event of disobedience or fulfillment. This is why we see Moses, think about this now, this is why we see Moses carrying two tablets down from the mountain, which they had, which, uh, excuse me, this is why we see Moses carrying two tablets down from the mountain and why they had to be remade after they were broken. These were written documents, written covenant documents, two copies, one for each party, one for God and one for Israel. Okay, this is this is the way we need to think about this. They were a written record of the covenant that God made with his people. Kruger cites arguments made by scholars. He says uh, that the New Testament epistles from, uh, fulfill a similar function as the Old Testament prophetic books in that they are designed to apply and uphold the terms of the covenant laid forth in their proper historical accounts. So Dr. Kruger also observes structural unity, uh, a structural unity he calls canon canonical structure. Uh, basically, and for the sake of time, uh, I want to note that this canonical unity can be seen if we recognize the Old Testament can be seen in three divisions. Okay? The law, the prophets, and the writings. And that the New Testament can be seen as four divisions. Gospels, Acts and the Catholic Epistles, the Pauline Epistles, and Revelation. These divisions make up a total of seven parts that can be seen to form the whole of God's redemptive story. I'll also note that it's a chiasm. All right. I don't know if we've ever talked about chiasms. Chiasm is a feature in, Hebra in, in Hebraic literature. It's where you start to make a case, and the pinnacle of the case is at the top here, like a pyramid. You'll see this in the Psalms a lot. You'll see stuff being stated and stated, and then you get to the to the main point, and then you'll come back down, and you'll basically repeat all the arguments. Right. So Christ is the center. We have the Gospels as the center of this biblical chiasm. All right. <clears throat> So as compelling as Kruger has made these arguments, I'll have to stop short in discussing them further so that we can look briefly at the other two attributes of canon. That's right, we've only covered one attribute of canon so far. Uh, the second, and generally the most focused on attribute of canon for Protestants, is apostolicity. When we can trace a book back to the apostles, this fact gives us greater confidence that it truly belongs in the canon. Kruger writes of the New Testament books, the apostolic character of these books reminds us that their authority, indeed their very existence, does not depend on the actions of the later church, but is rooted in the foundational role played by the apostles as ministers of the new covenant. They are not regarded as canon because the church receives them. The church receives them because they are already canon by virtue of their apostolic authority. The point that is made here about the apostles being ministers of the new covenant is made in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 6, where Paul states that 
God has made them, that is the apostles, adequate as servants of a new covenant. We need to note that in order for the apostles to function in this role and ultimately to write what would be the documents of the new covenant, they had to have authority and there had to be an expectation for the writings to come. Okay, so what are the expectations for writing for excuse me for excuse me, what are the expectations for written documents of the new covenant? All right? So we see a structural framework for covenant given in the Old Testament. Uh, Genesis 15, verse 18, it says, on, the day that the Lord, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land. Genesis 17, verse 18, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Exodus 34, 28, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Isaiah 55, verse 3, Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Also in Luke chapter 1, verse 72, To show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. In Luke chapter 22, verse 20, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And then uh, another one we'll look at, Hebrews chapter 8. Really quick. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 8, we'll start in verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their, into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And when he said, A new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So next, we see a structure for the covenant based on ancient Near Eastern treaties. You just kind of follow me for a second because it's going to get not strange, but I'm trying to lay out a path here. So, Near Eastern treaties followed this structure. Number one, they had a preamble, which includes the title of the ruler issuing the covenant. Number two, they had a historical prologue, which lays forth the relationship between the two parties and often includes some grounds for loyalty, such as a way in which the ruler or king rescued his subjects in the past. Number three, had stipulations, which covered the obligations of both parties. Number four, it had sanctions, which laid out the blessings and curses in accordance with the stipulations. And last, number five, a deposit of a written text of the covenant for both parties. So Kruger lays out the ways in which the Old Testament conforms to this pattern. This was, this is one of the ones I was just like, wow, that's, this is really amazing. 
So he says, the Ten Commandments given at Sinai, clearly the core of God's covenant with Israel, had a preamble. Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God. It had a historical prologue. Exodus 20, verse 2, the later part. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt? Had a list of stipulations. Exodus 20, verses 3 through 17. Right? Had a list of blessings and curses. Exodus 20, verse 5, 6, 7, 11, and 12. And most notably, two copies of the covenant in written form in the holy place of worship. Exodus 31, verse 18, and Deuteronomy 10, verse 2. We can now see that God supplies covenant documents to bear witness to the terms of the arrangement between him and his people. Kruger writes, In light of such a historical reality, it is clear that canon is inherent to and derives its function from the concept of covenant. We can infer that given this type of understanding, that the early Christians would expect written documents to accompany the new covenant. Okay? This was an expectation that early Christians would have had. Where's the written documents? Now we can ask where we see that the apostles had the authority to supply this type of written document. So as we noted earlier, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, calls the apostles servants of the new covenant. Chapter 13, verse 10 states, For this reason I am writing these things while absent, so that when present I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Dr. Kruger notes, If Paul's concept of a covenant is intimately connected to written texts, and he announces in a written text that he is the authoritative minister of a new covenant, it is difficult to avoid the implication that he also understands the new covenant as having written texts. The apostles clearly function as agents of canon, and this message was intended to go to all nations. Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 47. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And then in Isaiah chapter 2, let's turn there for a moment. Isaiah chapter 2, starting in verse 2. It says, now, now it will come about in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 10, Starting in verse 40, it says, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all people, 
but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and to solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. And then finally in Second Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> Second Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. With the authority of the apostles to give written documents firmly established, we can now note that not only their writing, but their teaching was seen as authoritative, which becomes important, okay? This becomes important when we consider that not all of the New Testament books were directly written by one of the apostles. Okay, so this is from the book. As a result of its distinctive character, the apostolic tradition took on foundational significance for the early church because such tradition was invariably connected to the apostolic office itself, which was unique and unrepeatable. It was not viewed as something that would be offered perpetually through the church age. The church's posture, therefore, would always be retrospective, looking back to the one-time deposit laid down by the Christ's apostles and building upon it. Its task was not to create new apostolic tradition, but to guard and preserve the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, which is Jude 3. And again, Kruger writes, But apostolic tradition did not have to be written down by an apostle to be authoritative. The apostles were quite willing to employ the help of key followers with the skills and gifts necessary for preserving the tradition. Not only was this done to aid the transmission of oral tradition, but apparently the apostles followed this same pattern when transmitting that tradition in written form. E.g., they used Mark and Luke. Right? So lastly, in our short study of the self-authenticating model of canon, we will turn to the church's corporate reception of the canon. Dr. Kruger actually spent the most time on this portion of the model compared to the divine qualities and apostolic origins. Okay, and this is because many modern scholars place such an emphasis on the reception of the books in the early church to determine their conclusions about canon. I will not spend much time here, <laughs> only because I think the issue is complex enough to merit a sermon by itself, and that I think that will be unnecessary for our purposes. Okay, so I want to quote section 5 of the first chapter of the 1689 now in its entirety. I briefly mentioned it earlier, but now I want to quote it, quote it in entirety. This is section 5 of 1689, uh, chapter 1. The testimony of the church of God may stir and persuade us to adopt a high and reverent respect for the Holy Scriptures. Moreover, the heavenliness of the contents, the power of the system of truth, the majesty of the style, the harmony of all the parts, the central focus on giving all glory to God, the full revelation of the only way of salvation, and many other incomparable qualities and complete perfections all provide abundant evidence that the Scriptures are the Word of God. Even so, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of the Scriptures comes from the internal work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. 
So what we need to understand about the corporate reception of the canon is that it was a slow process. One of my points these past two weeks has been that man cannot determine canon. Only God can. And that what man does is he recognizes what God has given through his servants in written form. With that said, we need to understand that the biblical canon exists whether we recognize it or not. Okay? What the early church did with recognizing canon took time, and this is understandable considering that the Scriptures warn us to be on guard against false teaching and false teachers. The canon was completed the minute the last book was finished. It was, up to, it was up to Christians over the next couple of centuries to finally recognize the books that were given under apostolic authority. We can see in the scriptures themselves that, that, that very early on there was a core of canonical books that were beginning to be recognized. So 2 Peter 3.16 speaks of Paul's letters as being sometimes hard to understand but holding the same authority as the other scriptures. Okay, 1 Timothy 5.18 quotes... 1 Timothy 5.18 quotes Luke 10, uh, verse 7 as Scripture. 2 Peter 3.2 alludes to a bicovenantal canon by referring to the words spoken by the prophets as well as the commandments spoken by the apostles. And Hebrews 2, verses 2 and 3 refers to the Old Testament as spoken by angels and then refers to the salvation spoken of through Christ and then confirmed by those who heard. We can also see that after the New Testament time period, there was a core canon that was recognized by many of the early church fathers. The early 2nd century gives us witnesses to this core. All right, and I'm just going to spout off some places where you can find canonical books listed together. Okay, that's what I'm giving you right here. Uh, you can find witnesses to this in First Clement, the Didache, the writings of Ignatius of Antioch, the writings of Polycarp, the Epistle of Barnabas, and the writings of Papias. The late 2nd century gives us the witnesses of the writings of Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and the Muratorian Fragment. All of these, all of these, are gone over uh, in sufficient depth in the book. But there's no way I was going to include all that information here. Uh, so what we clearly see early on for Christians is that most recognize the canonicity of the four Gospels, to the exclusion of the Apocryphal Gospels, one of the interesting notes in the book is that in the early church fathers, what you never saw was a collection of the canonical books, like the canonical Gospels or whatever. You never saw the four Gospels bound together with the Apocryphal Gospels. You never saw that. There were some churches and church fathers that would use the Apocryphal Gospels but they didn't see them as canon. They didn't see them as authoritative. And so they were never bound together in the collections of Scripture that they had. Okay? Uh, and so uh, the early church recognized the canonicity of, of the letters of Paul. And they recognized as well a small handful of other New Testament books. All right? And so what we, what we have in the early church is a whole lot of writings, letters, epistles, and even uh, collections of books that are bound together that show us very early on 
certain books were considered as scriptural canon and certain books were not. Okay, that's what we see if we look at the early church witnesses. We see the Gospels bound together. We see the Pauline uh, letters bound together. We see a couple of the other ones bound together. And then, of course, you have certain books that are, they kind of struggle to be a part of the canon, right? Like James is a really good example of a book that struggled. That doesn't mean that we don't have witnesses from the early church that consider them canon, right? But what it means is they were small books. They weren't used as widely, right? It's just, it's how the transmission had to happen, okay? So, it should not seem strange to us that the Holy Spirit had to be at work in the early church and that we can also see His work throughout the history of the church in protecting and preserving the books that we have in our canon. And so now we come full circle back to where we began. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Surely the reason we have arrived here in our time with the books that we have is because God has been faithful to give his word and to preserve it. The Bible is the word of God, and we should expect that he will make sure that we have it. In conclusion, I want to state again that what we've covered in the past two weeks is only a peek into this issue. And it's felt, I'm just going to be honest with you guys, it's felt strange to include so many quotes in my sermons. All right, it's felt strange. Uh, but I am thankful to God that he has blessed his people with the knowledge of these things so that we can learn and benefit from the work of God in their lives. But I'm a dumb, I, I am but a dumb, stuttering messenger in comparison to someone like Dr. Kruger on the topic of canon. But my hope is that we are all now just a bit wiser in regards to our understanding of how the books in our Bibles got there in the first place. And I want to end with one more quote from the book. It speaks to the type of people that those in the early church were. It says, They busied themselves not just with oral proclamation, but also, and perhaps primarily, with the written text. At their core, they were a people of the book. We are a people of the book. We read the scriptures in worship. We read the scriptures in public. We read the scriptures in our homes, to our children, and to ourselves. So let us be like those faithful ones who came before us and be a people of the book. Let's pray. Almighty God, I thank you again for this evening that we've had together. Father, I pray that uh, the things which I've spoken, Lord, that you would confirm it in our hearts. Lord, that anything that I have spoken that is not of you, Father, uh, that you would take it away from our memories, Father. That you'd help us not to focus in on it. God, I pray that you would use your word by your Holy Spirit to confirm to confirm for us, Father, that we truly can trust the Bibles that we have in our hands. Lord, all glory is yours, and I pray that as we go forward, we would truly be a people of the book, a people devoted to the Scriptures that you have preserved, that you have protected, Father, that you have handed down through your servants to us over uh, 
such a long period of time. God, we thank you that you've been faithful. We thank you that you have miraculously protected your word and guarded your word from being destroyed, from being forgotten, and from being lost. God, I pray that my weakness in this area of study would not be a stumbling block to your people, but God would be a reason for them and for myself to continue studying the issue of canon. God, I pray that Christ be exalted as we go our separate ways, that you help us, Father, uh, to be more and more conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.